0: Good morning. Um, We are going to continue with the last two plenary uh, presentations of the conference. First, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Christina Wyatt, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and she's going to be talking to us about kidney disease and HIV infection. Good morning, um, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. Um, I always feel short when I get close to one of these podiums, Um, so I think I'm actually going to stand out here a bit so that I can actually see you guys. Um, So thanks for sticking around to hear about kidney disease. I know this has been, um, for some providers, a huge issue and for others not so much at all. Um, And I'll touch briefly, I think, in my talk on why that might be the case, why some practices are seeing much more um, kidney disease in their population than others. Uh, Just a brief disclosure, I have received um, investigator-initiated research support from uh, Gilead Foundation um, and as a subcontract from Gilead Sciences, which is, Um, obviously relevant to a talk about HIV-related kidney disease, since they manufacture my favorite nephrotoxin, tenofovir. Um, So uh, I'm going to start with a couple of clinical cases. So the first case is a 56-year-old African-American woman who showed up in the emergency room with nausea and vomiting for about two weeks. Um, Her past medical history, she has HIV AIDS, with the last CD4 of around 300. Um, She has well compensated uh, hepatitis C cirrhosis with really no complications um, and no history of treatment. Her medications, um, at the time you see here, she was on uh, Truvada and Kaletra. And, oops, sorry, I'm going backwards. And uh, these were her labs um, that came back in the ER. So essentially the intern called the renal consult service and said, there's a patient here and here are the labs. Um, you'll see there are a few things missing, um, but really the relevant things, this is a patient who had a pretty pro- profound um, metabolic acidosis. Um, she had relatively normal um, serum potassium in the setting of a very elevated creatinine of 21. Um, her most recent baseline was 1.4, but actually baseline is probably not the right word to use because if you looked back in this patient's um, outpatient medical record, she actually, her, probably her normal baseline creatinine was closer to 0.8. Um, In any case, the the, um, intern also says, you know, there's got a a urinalysis with proteinuria, glycosuria, um, and some ketones. Um, And at that point, because of the nausea and vomiting, the patient had had, um, sort of in the ER, a plain film done that showed a normal bowel gas pattern. So presumably, this is the cause of the uh, nausea and vomiting. Um, So I'm gonna just talk briefly about um, about acute kidney injury in patients with HIV infection. Um, It's important for this audience because acute kidney injury is actually much more common in patients with HIV infection than it is in similar patients um, without, that's both in the ambulatory setting um, and in hospitalized patients. Um, And some of the risk factors um, for sort of, there are some traditional risk factors for acute kidney injury like older age um, and chronic kidney disease, which are also true in patients with HIV, but there are some additional risk factors in HIV infected patients. Um, In particular, patients with more advanced HIV disease are at higher risk. Um, In addition, patients with hepatitis C uh, co-infection also seem to have an increased risk for acute kidney injury. Um, It's important, not just because it happens more often, but because it's also associated with with bad outcomes, Um, both in-hospital bad outcomes, so sometimes patients require dialysis, there's an increase in in in-hospital mortality in patients with acute kidney injury, and this is not unique to patients with HIV, this is true in um, the general hospitalized patient population as well. Um, and more recently, um, Andy Choi, who is, um, was a colleague um, at UCSF who did a lot of work in this area and unfortunately um, was lost to our field within the last year, um, Dr. Choi showed that there was um, also an association with poor outcomes, long-term outcomes, so an increase in the risk of in-stage renal disease, cardiovascular disease, and death. Um, even following hospital discharge. So acute kidney injury is not a good thing. Um, it may not be the kidney injury itself that's bad, but certainly it's a marker of a patient um, who's at increased risk for, um, for bad outcomes. So it should sort of increase your vigilance um, in those patients. What causes acute kidney injury in patients with HIV infection? I think this is um, important information. These are data from um, a cohort study that was done at UNC um, in North Carolina and uh, they looked at about 700 cases that were followed prospectively over two years in the early 2000s um, and looked, really they had a nephrologist go back and look at all of the cases and attribute each case to a specific cause. Um, About 50% of those cases were attributed to a systemic infection. Um, The majority of those were AIDS-defining illnesses. So again, coming back to this point that um, patients with more advanced HIV disease are at increased risk. About a third of the cases were associated with drug toxicity. Um, and interestingly, the drugs were mostly um, not antiretrovirals, but were more likely to be sort of traditional antibi- antibiotics, um, including aminoglycosides and beta-lactans. Um, there were, because this was in, in 2002 to 2004, there was a little bit of overlap, and there were a handful of cases of both indenivir and tenofovir toxicity, but those were really not the, the major players here. Um, and as you can see, there were a lot of different clinical presentations. So some patients came with GI side effects and pre-renal um, symptoms, some patients had crystal urea obstruction, obviously, from, that was mostly a- IV cyclovir and um, uh, indenivir. There were some cases of, of more allergic interstitial nephritis, which, like you might see with the beta-lactam, um, and then there were a lot of cases, again, of, of acute tubular necrosis. Um, interestingly, and, and I think just a sort of final point from this study, they found that about 10% of the cases were, occurred in the setting of liver failure, so mostly hepatorenal syndrome type cases, and these were almost all in hepatitis C co-infected patients. Um, And this is certainly sort of compatible with what I'm seeing in my practice in New York. So back to our case. This is a patient with HIV hep C co-infection and well compensated cirrhosis um, who came in with two weeks of nausea and vomiting um, on the medications that are shown here. She actually also mentioned that she had been taking ibuprofen for a couple of days because she sort of thought this was a viral syndrome. Um, The missing labs that you asked the intern to sort of fill in for you. um, I mentioned before that there was glycosuria. There's actually now a normal serum glucose of 79. Um, This patient had no history of diabetes. Um, There's a slightly elevated phosphorus of 5.2. And uh, the urine electrolytes came back with a urine sodium of 60. And the patient had an unremarkable renal ultrasound. So no evidence of obstruction. She has two kidneys. They look like they're normal size. Really not much going on there. So with that, I'm gonna ask what people think is the most likely cause of acute kidney injury in this patient. So it could be prerenal, because she does have this history of nausea, vomiting, hepatorenal syndrome in um, a patient with a history of HIV hep C co-infection, nucleotide toxicity given her regimen, um, or diabetic ketoacidosis. So it's nice to see there's sort of a smattering of different answers, um, and I'm just going to briefly go through them and, and tell you sort of my rationale for thinking about them. It's, these are actually all, I think, reasonable considerations. Um, the first two, pre-renal and hepatorenal syndrome, classically have a low urine sodium. So as a nephrologist, that was the reason that I put them lower on my list of possibilities, but certainly wouldn't have taken them off because Anything that goes on too long can kill your tubules, at which point they can't hold on to urine sodium. So urine sodium that's low is just a marker of a kidney that's that's sodium-avid, that's trying to hold on to salt, and the the most common reason for that is because you're volume depleted, you're, you're dehydrated. But the, the, you know, other things like congestive heart failure, um, hepatorenal syndrome, things where there's decreased perfusion of the kidney also can cause that. So again, if those things go on long enough, your urine sodium can be high because the kidneys have just sort of died, um, which wouldn't be unreasonable in a patient whose creatinine has reached 20 and basically a GFR of zero. But I think that made them a little bit less likely as diagnoses. Um, diabetic ketoacidosis is not an unreasonable consideration um, in a patient who doesn't have a, you know, a history of diabetes, it can always present at any time, Um, but she did have this this glycosuria in the setting of um, a normal serum glucose, which is, even in a diabetic, is typically reassuring that it's not, um, this is not a proximal tubular issue. So um, I think, again, I agree with the audience that the most likely diagnosis is nucleotide toxicity. Um, so this I, I just wanted to talk briefly about antiretroviral nephrotoxicity in general. I'm going to spend most of the time talking about tenofovir because it's certainly, I think, what we're seeing or may be seeing the most often. Um, but I think it's important just to sort of remind ourselves that it's not the only agent that can cause um, potential problems. Um, so this, this actually was an interesting study. These are data from the Uriceta cohort, which is a largely Caucasian cohort in Europe, um, a prospective cohort study, and they had, collected a number of years of data in a large number of patients and were able to, instead of sort of taking on the known culprits, tenofovir and denovir, maybe um, boosted PIs, they actually looked at every antiretroviral agent except a couple of the new ones where they didn't have enough follow-up data and looked to see whether there was an association with chronic kidney disease as defined by a decrease in estimated GFR below 60. Um, So again, they, they looked at each agent as compared to not being, so being on that agent versus not being on that agent and they found, not surprisingly, tenofovir and indenivir were associated with an increased risk. Um, but they also found adizanivir. And, and I think this is um, sort of still an evolving issue. Um, and there are a lot of questions surrounding this. There's certainly a biologic, um, it's plausible um, if you think about the, the um, toxicity of adizanivir as compared to that of indenivir. Um, so c- certainly they share some, um, some similar toxicity profile, but much less common. Um, much, much less commonly do we see these issues with that as um, I think the complicating issue, and although this study and, and others that are following it up have really attempted to adjust for these confounding factors. The truth is that we all know that adizanavir is used uh, preferentially in patients with cardiovascular disease and patients with cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular risk factors um, are also at risk for chronic kidney disease. So I think this is an important, um, confounding factor that although you can adjust for as many cardiovascular risk factors as possible in a cohort like Uriceta, you really can't completely get rid of this. Um, So I think this will be interesting to see whether this turns out to be the case. you know, it's a question that comes up a lot in my practice when I see a patient who's got sort of this creatinine creep um, and, and no other obvious explanation, and it's, you know, certainly something to think about in patients who have um, known risk factors or known history of, of um, kidney stones. The other drug that showed up here um, was, was uh, basically boosted uh, lopinavir. Um, interestingly, ritonavir has been associated sort of over and over and over again with um, in case reports with toxicity, but none of these cases are, there, there's not sort of a unifying diagnosis there. So as opposed to indenivir, where it's clearly a crystal-related obstructive phenomenon, or tenofovir, where it's at least in the classic pr- presentation of a proximal tubular injury, there's not a sort of classic ritonavir-associated um, kidney injury, which, which suggests that it's, it's probably drug interactions with ritonavir, although it's possible that there's some true effect. Um, So again, these were sort of the four drugs that fell out in their analysis, and I think it's important just to keep those in mind if you have a mysterious patient where you can't figure out what's going on. Um, As I said, I was going to talk the most about tenofovir, um, because this is obviously uh, probably the biggest issue that we're seeing, um, that I'm seeing. I'm the uh, on-site nephrologist for our HIV clinic in Mount Sinai in New York. Um, And we have a very large practice now because we took over the St. Vincent's group downtown just recently, so we've sort of tripled the size of our um, practice and my practice. Um, and this is, this is at least the question that I get the most often in a patient who's got an elevated creatinine. Is this, is this an issue with tenofovir or is it something else? Um, so again, the classic presentation, and these were sort of the first case reports, is a proximal tubulopathy, so frank Fanconi syndrome. Um, if you think about what the proximal tubule is normally supposed to do, it's supposed to reabsorb a bunch of stuff that's freely filtered at the, at the glomerulus. So that stuff includes phosphorus, glucose, um, bicarbonate amino acid, uric acid, so looking for any of those things in the urine in higher amounts or in the serum in lower amounts could be um, an indication of tenofovir toxicity or, or proximal tubulopathy. Um, again, I think a lot of us are seeing problems with using hypophosphatemia as an indicator because there are a lot of other reasons that the serum phosphorus can be low apart from having a problem with your proximal tubule um, patients. It's, it's a profoundly related to dietary intake, so that can be, a, you know, Sort of a misleading and very non specific um, clue. Um, I think that euglycemic glycosuria. So as we saw in this patient, a patient who's got um, a normal serum glucose, no history of diabetes, and, and a bunch of glucose in her urine, there aren't a whole lot of reasons that glucose winds up there. Um, so it's essentially all um, reabsorbed at the level of the proximal tubule. So if the proximal tubule is either injured, dead, or just not doing its job very well, then you filter a normal amount of glucose. Usually that would all be reabsorbed, but if it's not working, then it can wind up in the urine. So. And the setting of a normal serum glucose, glucose in the urine is not normal and and probably should be considered a pretty specific indicator for proximal tubular damage. So I'd say of all of the things that you could look for in routine practice, um, I'd say euglycemic glycosuria is probably the most useful specific tool, but it's really not very sensitive. We don't see it very often, even in patients where we're pretty sure that's the diagnosis. Um, interestingly, you know, again, I say this is the classic presentation. Um, these were the first cases that were reported, and the majority of the cases that have been reported, largely because this was known to be the classic toxicity of its predecessor drugs, um, adefavir and Sadofavir, which had very, you know, similar but much more severe toxicity profiles. So when people first started recognizing these cases, those were the cases that people, A, recognized, and B, that journals were willing to report or publish because they looked like sort of what you might expect from Tenofovir. Um, I think there are a lot of questions about whether there's sort of a broader toxicity profile or nephrotoxicity profile of tenofovir, um, and this is something that I think a lot of us are still struggling with today in these patients where you see, again, I think Linda says, like my colleague at Duke, also often calls it a the creatinine creep. Um, but you, when, when you see this and, and you're not sure what else is going on, it is, it's tough to know whether it's tenofovir or not. Um, in any case, about 2% of patients develop significant toxicity or clinically relevant toxicity, either proximal tubulopathy or a decline in GFR that's significant enough to warrant consideration of, of drug discontinuation. Um, and these are data from cohort studies um, and also from the manufacturer's expanded access program. Um, From very few um, peer-reviewed journals, but from a lot of data that have been presented at national meetings, there's a much more frequent um, incidence of subclinical abnormalities. So if you look at a population of patients taking tenofovir compared to patients either taking other regimens or um, not on antiretroviral therapy, there's a lot more um, urinary phosphorus, for example, a lot more urinary amino acids, a lot more sort of random biomarkers of of, um, kidney injury. And again, it's not clear at all what any of these things mean because there's only been one study that's tried to look at urinary biomarkers and longitudinal outcomes, at least among published studies. And that was in an Asian population um, and they weren't really focused on tenofovir toxicity, but did find that a couple biomarkers could predict um, sort of progressive progressive kidney disease. So again, I think the, the verdict is, or the jury is still out on whether or not these subclinical abnormalities have any clinical relevance at all. Um, and certainly right now, I don't think there's any indication to look for them, um, because I wouldn't know what to do with them if I found them. <clears throat> the other thing that's been found more often than the classic Fanconis is we know that in cohort studies, um, there's been a sort of small but stable decrease in estimated GFR. Um, and one question that comes up often that I think is actually not entirely an answered question yet um, is whether there's a chance that tenofovir is actually in, um, interfering with the tubular secretion of creatinine. Um, so obviously, it doesn't have the same type of effect as a drug like cimetidine or um, sort of familiar agent for this audience, Bactrim, um, which is known to do that on a pretty, uh, you know, pretty aggressively. Um, it's, I think it's possible, we, we know that, and I'll, I'll actually have, a, I think, a slide with a scary looking proximal tubule a few slides from now. Um, but again, there's no clear reason why that would be the case in terms of how tenofovir and creatinine are transported at the level of the tubule. But I think a case like this—this this was a tiny, tiny little lady—and um, if you think about where creatinine comes from, she didn't have enough muscle really to generate a creatinine of 20. So it's patients like this. I just saw another recent, very you know, tiny uh, Filipino woman who's a nurse that was that had an occupational exposure um, also coming with tenofovir toxicity and creatinine of about 15. Um, which is, you know, sort of inexplicable to me in a patient of that size. So um, I I suspect that there may be something going on. It's not sort of through the obvious transport mechanisms. It's not probably the same mechanism as as, um, Bactrum, but I think there is something there, and I think there are a lot of people that are studying that issue. Um, this is just a reminder, I don't think you need to know exactly what the, what the pathology looks like, but just a reminder that if you have a complicated case or a case where you really don't want to stop tenofovir, for example, a patient with a heavy co-infection um, or with a terrible resistance profile um, to other agents, then you can actually you know, prove or disprove whether this is at least a proximal tubular injury, injury related to tenofovir, um, and that's by doing a kidney biopsy. So the kidney biopsy findings are specific enough. Um, that I think this would be a useful test in a patient where you really are struggling with the diagnosis and where the option of just stopping the drug to see what happens is is not really a great one. Um, Who's at risk for tenofovir toxicity? And unfortunately, this is not like a Abacavir where we can sort of identify um, a priori patients who are potentially at risk and and avoid the regimen in them. Um, The risk factors for tenofovir toxicity are still pretty controversial. Um, I think one that that's nobody would argue with is a patient who's got an unrecognized um, decrease in their kidney function. So a patient with um, an estimated GFR that's you know, low, but their creatinine looks kind of normal, so a tiny little lady like mine. Um, those patients are clearly at increased risk, and I don't think anybody would argue with that. So you know, one thing just to think about is if you have a patient where the creatinine and the body habitus and everything else doesn't seem to jive is to really think a little bit harder about um, that patient and their do- dosing. Um, There are some questions, I think, about genetic predisposition. Certainly there are some studies that have suggested um, particular polymorphisms um, in tubular transporters that may be associated. Um, The rationale behind those and the biologic plausibility is a little bit in question. Um, And finally, concomitant medications. It's pretty clear that um, DDI is not a good combination with tamalfavir. There have been a lot of studies that have suggested an association with boosted protease inhibitor use, in particular boosted lopinavir. Um, and again, we know that some of the boosted PIs do raise um, serum levels of, of um, tenofovir, so there's certainly a, a reason to believe that that might be the case. Um, and non essentially anything that's nephrotoxic, causes a transient decrease in your GFR, could potentially predispose a patient to tenofovir toxicity. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this, but just again to say that these, these are um, a couple of the, uh, the transporters that have been studied in... Oops, I'm pointing the pointer at myself. That's not very helpful. Um, this this um, is the transporter that's known to be interfered with by, with, by rotonavir and actually the transporter where the most studies have shown um, a linkage with polymorphisms. But, th- th- again, this, this uh, transporter doesn't have anything to do with the transport of tenofovir, so it's not really clear why that would have an effect. Um, and I think there are a lot of studies now going back and looking in more detail at the um, e pump, the MRP4 uh, transporter, which actually does... Um, basically get tenofovir out of cells. Uh, What's on the horizon for tenofovir and What are some of the challenges to expect, I think, down the road? Um, I think probably everybody in this audience is familiar with the story um, about Gilead's new um, non-antiviral boosting agent, um, GS9350, which the the name, I can't actually, Pocobica Stat, um, anyway, essentially this, this agent, which is gonna be potentially combined with, um, with tenofovir, and which interestingly is also potentially a boosting agent for um causes a rapid re- and reversible decline in estimated GFR, but no change in measured GFR. So this actually truly does have an effect or an interference with the tubular secretion of creatinine, similar to a drug like trimethoprim. So I think you know, it's not causing an injury as far as we can tell, it's just causing a change in the serum creatinine, which makes it no longer a very good marker um, for kidney function, but certainly um, I think will boost business for me if nothing else um, because it's really, it's really going really to confuse the issue, I think. So, uh, you know, I'm interested to see what will, what will happen with that. Um, the other thing that I think will be interesting is to see, um, I think the manufacturer would like us to believe that the new formulation that they're developing of tenofovir is not going to have the same level of, of nephrotoxicity, but haven't really seen any data to, to support why that would be the case. So, again, these are some things I think to keep, In mind down the road. Um, I'm going to kind of try to speed up and get through a couple of cases of more sort of chronic kidney disease. Um, Some of the other things I think we're all seeing a lot of comorbid kidney disease in our aging population. Um, This is a 43-year-old woman that I've been seeing for a number of years, first came to me with chronic kidney disease. Um, She's also got HIV Hep C co-infection. She um, never had clinical aids. She'd been really long-standing history of hypertension and diabetes Um, And she was on a pretty lousy suboptimal um, antiretroviral regimen, as you can see there, just based on her sort of personal preference. She's an incredibly charming but stubborn lady. Um, She was on uh, a a calcium channel uh, blocker and an ACE inhibitor for blood pressure, and she was taking insulin for her diabetes. Um, You can see her blood pressure is not well controlled. She's overweight. Um, Her, you know, she's got stage 5 chronic kidney disease even at this point with an elevated serum phosphorus, she's got a lot of proteinuria, she's got some glycosuria because her diabetes is also not well controlled. Um, but her HIV, despite her suboptimal regimen, is, is okay. Um, so what do you think is the most likely cause of kidney disease in this patient? So she could have HIV-associated nephropathy, she is African-American, diabetic or hypertensive nephrosclerosis based on her long-standing history. Um, she could also have Hep C-related, GN, um, or maybe we don't know and need more information. Great. So again, we have a nice spread. Um, no one really thought, or very few people thought, she had Hep C-related GM. Um, She doesn't have a whole lot specific for that, but again, I I would actually include that on my differential. Um, I would include everything here on my potential differential, um, and because of this, I thought that, number five, I needed more information um, and went ahead to get that information by doing a kidney biopsy. Um, This is not what she had. She actually ended up having um, diabetic and hypertensive kidney disease, but I think this just sort of, you know, no talk about HIV-related kidney diseases is is complete without at least one slide on HIVAN, um, again, Hyvan is classically associated with more advanced HIV disease, more advanced than this patient had, but again, she was on suboptimal antiretroviral therapy, so it's certainly reasonable. Um, there's an incredibly strong um, racial disparity in this disease where it almost exclusively affects African Americans, um, I think with real potential for problems in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there now is, is pretty clear data that this is a genetic susceptibility that's linked to chromosome 22, Um, I won't be specific about the gene because I'm afraid that next year I'll be eating my words and it will be yet a third gene. We've now had two genes that have been implicated. Um, But in any case, it's very clear that this is a genetic um, predisposition. And finally, because this is a disease that's associated with direct HIV infection, the epidemiology has changed really dramatically um, since the introduction of antiretroviral therapy. Um, And there's really, you know, this is kind of a, a, a disappearing disease in the United States. Um, the treatment for HIVAN, the first-line treatment is antiretroviral therapy. Um, again, this is based on no randomized controlled trials, but purely on sort of data from pathogenesis and epidemiologic studies. There are a couple of really lousy, um, uncontrolled or controlled by people who refuse to take antiretroviral therapy kind of studies, but really nothing definitive. Um, but at, at this point, the DHHS guidelines include um, HIVAN as one of the few indications to initiate antiretroviral therapy regardless of CD4. Um, adjunctive therapy for hivan is based on even less data, um, but it's certainly reasonable, I think, to consider ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker therapy in patients who can tolerate it in terms of their blood pressure. I wouldn't try to push for it in somebody who's, you know, already a little bit borderline hypertensive or who's got problems with their potassium because the data are extrapolated from other proteinuric kidney diseases and, and, you know, supported by, again, really lousy, um, essentially uncontrolled studies in the HIV population. Um, And finally, some people will use corticosteroids in patients with really um, rapidly progressive or refractory disease. Again, that's sort of a risk-benefit decision that you have to make on a case-by-case basis um, because the data are are not great to support that, but certainly if you've got somebody who's about to reach dialysis and hasn't responded to other therapy, it's not unreasonable to consider. Um, As I mentioned, this is a disease that's becoming less and less common. These are data that were published in 2004, but if you look actually at similar data from the Johns Hopkins cohort, um, you can see that the little piece of the pie that represents hyvan is getting smaller and smaller, and the piece that represents, um, you know, other viral diseases and comorbid diseases like diabetes and hypertension is getting bigger and bigger. Um, and again, this is, I think, what we're, what we're seeing in our population. And as a result of this, I think you can no longer see a patient who comes in with a low CD4 count and, you know, history of comorbid conditions and, and a bunch of proteinuria and say they've got HIV and just sort of leave it at that. Um, I think that kidney biopsy is really underutilized in this population and one thing that I think is important um, to, to note is that the Johns Hopkins group, which has done really the largest um, number of biopsies in this patient population, has recently published data to suggest that there's absolutely no increase in the risk of uh, procedural risk of a kidney biopsy in patients with HIV infection, um, with the exception of patients who have HIV hep C co-infection of course are the ones I'm the most interested in biopsying, but again, I think even that risk is is reasonable and worthwhile um, if you can make a diagnosis. Um, How do you identify chronic kidney disease in patients with HIV? The IDSA guidelines are actually being updated um, as we speak and hopefully will be published someday, although they're sort of mired in committees right now, Um, but I think they're not going to change too dramatically, essentially recommending a creatinine-based GFR estimate. Which one is a question, and for those of you coming to my workshop, we can talk about this in more detail. Um, I would say the default for drug dosing should be Cockroft-Galt because that's what the FDA uses to develop drug dosing guidelines. Um, But the CKD-EPI equation, um, at least based on data presented um, at at meetings, um, appears to be the most accurate, uh, actual estimate of GFR. Um, Again, evaluation for urine protein is also recommended, but without a whole lot of guidance on how to do that. I think routine urinalysis is fine for most patients. Um, for patients where you think there's, there's an increased risk um, and you want to start with the urine protein creatinine ratio, I think that's, that's reasonable. Obviously, if the UA is positive, the protein creatinine ratio is a good way to, to quantify it. Um, and if you suspect a non-albumin proteinuria, so if you have a patient where you think you're worried about myeloma or some other um, myeloid disorder, that would be a reasonable thing to do. I almost never, and this is a question the chairs asked me about uh, the difference between your urine, urine protein creatinine ratio and a 24-hour urine collection, almost never ask anyone to do a 24-hour urine collection, um, really, unless I'm trying to diagnose the cause of stone disease um, or if I get really discrepant results um, from my urine protein creatinine ratio and, and, you know, sort of what I expect. Um, the only other time I would do it is in a patient with acute kidney injury, because it's really incredibly cumbersome to do if you if I've done it several times for colleague studies, and. Sort of each time I did it, I ordered fewer and fewer of them in my patients. Um, and it, it's also just, you know, it's cumbersome, but also people really don't follow the instructions, and you get really, I think, pretty poor, um, pretty poor information. Um, obviously, the other group that, that would be um, different would be patients who don't have proteinuria um, but are diabetic um, should have a microalbuminuria done as routine on um, diabetic care. Um, patients should be rescreened if they're high risk. Um, That includes patients who are of black race, patients with Hep C co-infection, patients with more advanced HIV disease, and obviously patients with traditional um, renal risk factors like diabetes and hypertension. Um, So again, back to our case, I said she had um, diabetes and hypertension in her kidney, how would you treat her? Um, Tight blood, blood pressure and glycemic control are the standard of care for chronic kidney disease, both with and without HIV, although the data are not great. Um, for the use of, um, or for really tight blood pressure control in patients with, um, with, with, who, of black race, um, chronic kidney disease is also a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and I would recommend that these patients um, have some uh, cardiovascular risk modification addressed as well. And finally, in, in any patient either with chronic kidney disease or in-stage renal disease, um, drug dosing and drug regimen is an important thing to address um, and review sort of continuously in these patients, particularly patients with a declining GFR. So I'll stop there, and my question and answer period is with, um, with Dr. Morazzo in just a bit.